The information and opinions expressed on these broadcasts are intended to address specific questions asked or situations described on the program and are not designed to constitute advice or recommendations as to any disease, ailment, or physical condition. You should not act or rely upon any information contained in these broadcasts without seeking the advice of your personal physician. If you have any questions about the information or opinions expressed during these broadcasts, please contact your doctor. Welcome to the train wreck. I'm your host, Dr. Joe, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jason Waller and Angelina Grip. All aboard. And it's the train wreck. I am, uh, like it was so eloquently stated, I am Dr. Joe. To my left is Angelina Grip, therapist extraordinaire. Hello, Angelina. Hi there, Dr. Joe. How's it going? And in studio for Alex Meshi. As for uh, Jason Waller, is Alex Meshi. Welcome. Hey, Dr. Back, Joe. Back, Alex. Yeah, it's good for to be For another back. cameo appearance. How are you? Doing well. Had a fun week. Good, yeah. So you went to a um, uh, little movie premiere last week, Super Troopers 2. Give us a little rundown on the movie. Uh, no okay, spoilers, so it was good. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. And, oh, perfect. It's funny that you said that word. Yeah. That's a nice topic, perfection. Mm-hmm. It is. Is it killing us as a society, or is it making us better? I don't know. That's a good question. Is it a gift or a curse? We can talk about that later, though. I think we will. The phone number here is 949-650-1015. Call in. Join the conversation at any time. You can also uh, join us uh, on... Uh, Instagram at Jason Waller. That's at J A S O N W A H L E R. And Jason should be back very soon. Yeah, he's coming back from vacation here. He should be hopefully back next week. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Right on. And we are on SoundCloud and iTunes. Search the Trainwreck Radio Show. What show is this? Show number 10? Show number 10. We are in the double digits now. Look at us. I don't know if it's getting better, but we're doing it. (laughs) Practice, not perfection. It couldn't get any worse than the first couple of shows. It's uh, been a bumpy ride. uh, Thank you to our uh, faithful listeners. And if you have a friend that's outside of the Orange County listening area, it's kociradio.com. So uh, let's jump right in. Yeah, so what did you read in the news this week, Dr. Joe? Uh, interesting. Prince, uh, the Prince stories are rearing their ugly heads again. So New York Times on uh, April 19th uh, talked about further findings of the, in the investigation of Prince's death. So are you saying we got a, a upgraded or renewed toxicology report? Uh, I'm saying that the suspicion was that he thought he was taking Percocet and it was fentanyl. Surprise. Ooh. Have you seen you've seen this, Ange? Yeah. Well, where'd he get it? And how'd he get it? Supposedly from a friend. Yeah, so I read the yeah. New York Times article and mm-hmm. it sounded like for discretionary purposes the doctor prescribed it to a friend who then gave it to him. Oh. And it sounded like they were counterfeit Vicodin pills. Oh, which geez. any sort of counterfeit pressed pill to me just scares me, especially a good topic since Co- uh, Coachella just ended. I'm sure there were plenty of those passed around. But, yeah, counterfeit. That would have been a great story. Anybody die at Coachella this year? Pretty frightening. I don't know. I don't go seeking. EDC EDC is coming up in Vegas. And what is that, next week? Mm. Uh, A couple weeks. A couple weeks? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a crazy time in the desert. That's going to be crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah, because we're imagine. getting closer to summer, and it's how many kids? It's going to be like Burning Man, but not just kids. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> eighteen and over, and about a hundred and twenty thousand people per day. But at least it won't be like Jeez. Burning Man, where you see a bunch of old men just walking around in shirts and nothing else. I think I you'll can't... see a bunch of old men walking around <laughs> without shirts. <laughs> In costumes, Ew. yeah. In costumes, With a lot yeah. of glitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of a lot of candy. I think they call it. So, so, so that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Counterfeit pills. So, so you buy your pills on the street. What are you getting? You have no idea. Uh, you know, people who really know, like especially Xanax, you can get fake Xanax, counterfeit Xanax that are pressed that kind of look like the real deal, uh, and they're putting, you know. You're lucky if half of that is Xanax, and the fentanyl now is actually cheaper than Xanax, especially the fentanyl that we're getting from uh, over, you know, south of the border or from China. Yeah, well, that's one of my curiosities because the article says that this was prescribed to his friend. So if you're getting a prescription, I'm assuming you're filling that at a pharmacy, right? So if a pharmacy is handing over counterfeit <laughs> pills, are they doing that as a cost saving measure, or why are they handing over counterfeit pills? I don't know. And th- th- does that even make sense? It, it really doesn't. Mm-mm. You so. know, that, that's my curiosity because they're all saying counterfeit, you know, Vicodin supposedly, but it's actually fentanyl. But he had a prescription to his friend, unless the doctor's writing bogus prescriptions and telling, yeah, go see the pharmacist on the corner of <laughs> X and Y. Go see my friend who's a pharmacist. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know. That, that one sounds a little fishy to me. This story sounds a little fishy. But you know what? It's not uncommon for somebody who's... Um, who's taking a regular prescription then to augment that prescription with, you know, street bought pills. Okay. So, you know, but don't you think somebody who had an opioid overdose six days before he passed away would be on a little bit more supervision? Yeah, no. (laughs) And that's another thing. I mean, doctors egos is an investigation into this doctor underway right now. And also when you're um, a celebrity at this kind of, you know, when you're, you can do whatever you like. Money yeah. buys you freedom, right? Yeah, I guess to a certain extent, I would hope that doctors would have a little more ethics behind them to, mm-hmm. or better morality yeah, than not to really. just yeah. do whatever you would for hope the sake so, but paycheck. it doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. You're, you know what? The docs who get involved in stuff like this talk themselves into it. It's not, it's not a shift from good doc to like Doctor Feel Good overnight. There's, you know, you do shades of gray, and then you get darker and darker, and then by the time you're you're in too deep, you can't say no. And if, especially if you're being paid, I mean, I would imagine these doctors are getting paid pretty, you know, yeah, boutique medicine. Well, question for you, Dr. Joe, because, I mean, I always hear all the doctors complaining about getting paid by insurance companies or this or that. Or not getting paid. Or not getting paid. So when you have these doctors with their million-dollar yachts and their airplanes and Ferraris, I mean, is it something kind of gray area that you think the income's coming from? Well, no. Yeah. I mean, also, what kind of doctors are you talking about? What do you mean? Doctors, doctors don't own yachts. Sure there are. are. You, no, you're insane. <laughs> you're absolutely insane. I'm going to drug test you right now. <laughs> well, okay, uh, so then let me ask you this. Okay, I mean, have okay, you ever been we, approached by outside, like, you know, companies or any sort of opportunities to promote or recommend certain things in, in terms of getting a kickback or some sort of spiff? Pre-1999. Then we had pharma laws in place. And then after that, pharmaceutical companies couldn't even give you a pen. 
literally with the with the drug's name on it, they would get fined hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, but prior to that, oh, we were you know, doctor. I knew of some cardiologists that you know were pushing real cutting edge medications. Um, that worked. I mean, I, you know, you're obviously you're not going to write a prescription. Hopefully, I didn't. You aren't going to write a prescription that's going to, you know, be not as efficacious as something else that would be cheaper. But I mean, docs would get Caribbean trips paid for trips, to, uh, you know, from West Coast trips to Hawaii. Um, I Lakers seats, <laughs> floor seats at the Lakers game. You know, sounds like a pretty that's, good deal. That's, um, you know, uh, and that's why we had to put laws like that into place. And uh, I think they were draconian to begin with, but you know, pendulums swing back and forth. But but getting back to getting back to this doctor, I mean, who took care of Prince? Look at my remember Michael Jackson's doctor. This you know, you start believing your own press clippings and you're screwed. And these doctors don't have any outside forces. They've just got one person giving them a lot of money and they think they're doing the right thing because they're, you know, he's taking care of Prince's pain and, and in the background, Prince is dealing with a lot of, uh, a lot of things that maybe aren't, people aren't aware of. Yeah, there's always a story behind the story that, you know, we don't know. We weren't there. We weren't Prince. We weren't, we weren't the people around him and, uh, and what you read and, and see in the media is one thing and the truth is often something else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of, like I said, fishy information kind of back and forth. And to really understand and say what's going on, I think, would be a long shot at this point. Yeah. Mainly because, one, we weren't there. And, two, we're not in the inner circle that would actually know. Right. Um, It just, for me, the whole idea of prescribing something to a friend and a pharmacy filling it and, you know, going through those means. And then, like I said, having that opioid overdose six days before having Mm -hmm. to turn the jet around and make an emergency stop. (laughs) Sounds to me like there's maybe some negligence at play. And it sounds like he was in crisis. Um, and like you're right, you know, we, we would assume someone going through something like that would be um, monitored more closely. You would hope. And um, obviously he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I could say, Dr. Joe, if we were partying on a jet and we had to make a pit stop because you need to visit a hospital, chances are we're probably canceling that tour. <laughs> and we're taking you home. <laughs> Not if you were making a ton of money off of it and I was paying you. I care about you more than money. And how would you like to be Prince's uh, therapist? I think um, it would have been it would have been a really tough job. It would have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it would have been it would have been really interesting. Goodness knows what was beneath that um, that amazing performer, <laughs> right? Who who, as it was reported, he was a perfectionist. So we're, we you know tonight's topic we're talking about perfection. Mm-hmm. Pr- can you imagine just I mean having to have this expectation of yourself? You know, I can't even. You know, but look at look how, at what he did he, as a result of it. How old was he when he died? I mean, Eddie was comparing himself probably to when he was younger and when he could tour. You know, yeah. I mean, he, he definitely led a very interesting lifestyle. The fact that he didn't even have a cell phone to protect his you know discretion. To me, in, in today's day and age, especially when everybody has a cell phone, including you know six year old kids on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's mind blowing. Like, I'd love to have a conversation just to see what's going on in his head. You right. know, ask him how his day is and just to hear what comes from him. <laughs> you know, because it'd probably be something absolutely off the wall. But I'm sure once you reflected on it, you're like, man, this guy's genius for sure. You know. And he also had, um, you know, some some tragic occurrences in his lifetime. So, 
I think he would have been a very complex character to get to know. Well, just look at Dave Chappelle's take on him. <laughs> if that was, I mean, and that was based on you know his altered reality, but he's still imagine blouses. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, th- those episodes are We're awesome. Pancake- no, what was it? Having waffles? <laughs> after play- pancakes after or waffles. playing shirts and skins. Shirts yeah. and blouses. <laughs> the revolution for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'll definitely be missed. And, and his musical genius, you know. I, I didn't really listen to him um, at growing up, but I listen to him now for sure, even more so. Oh, my God. And listening to his guitar playing, I mean, perfectionist. Uh, should we go to our topic? Yeah. So perfectionism, is it a gift or a curse? That's a tough one. Me, personally, if I had to gauge, I feel like there's three levels. There's organized, there's perfectionist, and then there's straight up OCD. And being organized is a good thing, I think. You know where everything is. You kind of have everything in motion. You have your schedule figured out. You more or less have a plan for yourself. Perfectionist, I mean, that's taking organized to a whole new level. And I feel like you're adding a complexity of stress to your life, maybe unneeded. Mm-hmm. Or maybe some people need that as their motivation to keep going. And then I feel like once you get into the more crazy side, you become you know, OCD that everything has to be done a certain way, a certain amount of times. And if it doesn't happen, you pretty much lose your mind over it. Well, when you're a perfectionist, you, you know, you have this um, compulsion to do everything a certain way, like you said, but you also have this, uh, if you don't do it and if you don't get it right, then you get psychologically disturbed by it. So, you know, being a perfectionist is really hard work. But it's also emotionally disturbing when you don't meet those standards that you've set for yourself. So, Angelina, you deal with addicts and alcoholics on a daily basis. What percentage of them would you say are perfectionists? Probably 90% of them. And would you say that the substance abuse or the alcoholism is because of a lack of a proper coping mechanism, maybe for the failure that they run into or the hard times? Uh, I would say um, for a lot of them. I mean, you know, everybody's an individual. I'm throwing out some numbers that are probably, they're guessing, I'm guessing. But I would say a lot of people I've worked with, at least that I've had interactions with personally, there's a lot of them that are perfectionists and they, they... because of the failure that they've coped, that they've encountered, um, and the inability to cope with that, checking out is a great way for them to to manage that stress. Um, you know, we live in a culture of perfectionism. Let's take a look at professions that suffer from uh, the highest have the highest rates of addiction and alcoholism. So, what the healthcare industry would you say? So, doctors, nurses, mm-hmm. dentists. Weren't de- de- didn't dentists at one time have the highest suicide rate? Um, I'm not sure they did. Yeah, yeah, they did. Really? Okay. I mean, I'd believe it. I, I would hate to work on teeth all day. Mm-hmm. No, that would be tough. But also, look at you know, you look at the younger generation. You look at the way we have access to data these days, and how we can um, we can measure and we can compare and um, compare people to one another. And so you've got this pressure. Um, you can rank. You know, um, you can rank people against one another and you can say, okay, this person um, has these certain uh, qualifications and this person um, can enter into college based on this certain information and these um, th- these strengths and these weaknesses. So, you know, you've got this, this push to be a certain way, right? But it's out there for everybody to see. 
That's a lot of pressure. So do you think perfectionism is genetic? Or do you think it's learned? Or do you think it's both? Do you think that there's certain brain chemistries that are more prone to... Because you see perfectionism uh, that go hand in hand with certain types of addictions, right? And certain eating disorders. And eating disorders, psych- yeah. So as a therapist, what your perfectionist would come... Give, give, us, give us a good snapshot, a typical snapshot of the perfectionist that's come in because they're there because they couldn't cope with their perfection. God, there's so or, many. Or they couldn't meet their... Un, uh, it was unmet self-imposed expectations you um you have this this inability to manage your i mean that's kind of a broad question right Mm -hmm. you're throwing at me right there but i think that you have this inability to be able to you're setting expectations for yourself that are absolutely unrealistic right Mm -hmm. and so you're trying to you're trying to um and it's in all areas of your life. So if you're trying to um, be perfect at everything, and um, you're you're always going to fail, so you're immediately um, striving for for something that you're never going to attain. So when you fail, what do you do? You're emotionally devastated by that. Mm. And if you don't have the coping mechanisms in place, well, you can't cope against trying to be perfect. Mm-hmm. How are you going to do that? No mm. one's perfect. So you're constantly setting yourself up for failure. There, there are so many self-help life coaches that say to be perfect, you've got to fail. So how, how do you teach somebody to be? But I think that's uh, I think that's perfectionist. That's inappropriate to say to be perfect because there's no such thing as perfection. To be successful. Well, being the best version and, of you. And it's also your definition of success. Right, defining success. But look at the culture we live in today. Right, it's very it's very self centric. It's very me driven. It's all about you competing against the person next to you or the million other people out there. Mm. And I think that makes it it makes it really difficult for you to have a really um, to be able to be really fair and to be able to be really true to who you are. You're trying to compete with the person, um, Alex. You kind of know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, even since the day we we were born, everything has been a comparison. I mean, our parents talked about how big we were as as babies and how Mm -hmm. long and how long it took for us to start walking and things like that. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. we're pretty much stacked up ever since birth. Yeah. So, I definitely see the pressures there. Um, Me personally, I'd say more of it comes culturally than um, genetically. Well, because... I mean, here in America, we have our specific, you know, American culture, whatever that may be. But elsewhere in the world, they're on a much different learning schedule. So for them to come here, you know, take my dad, um, our future guest, for example, he would look at my, my homework when I was in fourth or fifth grade. And it was all stuff equivalent to what he was doing in first or second grade. So it, it's almost like to the outside perspective, we're lagging when we're in it and we're keeping up or so we thought, right? Mm-hmm. So there's right. there's almost an extra push or uh, some sort of extra pressure there coming from that. And then couple that with the fact that you have a lot of um, you know first-generation immigrants coming here with the expectation that America is the land of opportunity. They want their kids to be the best and you know brightest, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of these... Uh, you know, uh, second generation or first generation Americans rather, but they're all striving to be doctors and scientists and attorneys and all these really high profile jobs. And, you know, in countries like Japan, you have people 
committing suicide just because they didn't make it into college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And then you've also now got this culture where, again, going back to the information, where before you used to be able to go into a job interview where you had your resume in your hand and you got to present yourself as, here I am, this is me. And um, and you got you got interviewed based on that piece of paper that you presented to the person that you're interviewing with and you got to present your personality like here I am this is mm-hmm. this is it now before you even walk in the door you've already been investigated pretty much they've checked you out online mm-hmm. they've um, they've ranked you against your competitors and you because uh, I've, I've done this I've looked at where you can do this and you you've already been ranked in the top 10 percent of your competition and um, they've already basically said well you know this person has a a 20% chance of being a good fit for this based on these qualifications and so on and so forth so there's all this this pressure for you as an individual to be the best based on that information that you probably have access to as well knowing when you go in I'm in the top 10% so on and so forth look at what we're missing out on in life I mean there's so much all this perfectionism you you miss out on the cre on the creativity i mean you miss out on the uh, on the fun mm-hmm. you, you I, i'm not i'm not sure uh, you know alex you'd mentioned before that uh, you know you you compare kids oh my kid walked at this isn't there a backlash now against that it's like nobody wants to hear that anymore and you know nobody wants to hear it. they still talk about it I mean, yeah, every, so every day, every day at work, <laughs> you hear about people talking about kids and, and it gets very frustrating. And now I hear my friends talking about them cause they're all having kids mm. and, oh yeah, you know, the second one's walking so much faster and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, how, do, how does it make you feel as a kidless person? Uh, makes me feel like I did the right decision cause I see <laughs> how they're struggling to pay for, you know, their bills and stuff College and, and, stuff we and Montessori's are like a thousand bucks a month. Oh, a kid, I remember. You know? Yes. <laughs> so it makes me feel like I did the right thing. I just, you know, my, Mike, I have an 11 year old and an 18 year old. So my, when my 18 year old was, was we lived up in Pasadena and there is there was just this cutthroat just for pre-k and then k and then I remember having to get on waiting lists and just the comparison I I just threw in the towel actually I didn't I I, I grew an enormous addiction based on it because I I tried to buy into it and you know people who suffer and this this shows kind of hovers around addiction and this is kind of what we try to talk about I mean I most addicts and alcoholics have to have to lower their expectations and be in acceptance of who they are to really be free of their disease. But you know, not just alcoholics and addicts. I think everybody does. You know, okay. I mean, we really need yeah. to we need to stop. And first of all, also, you know, employers and 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 colleges and teachers out there. I mean, everybody who has access to this information really needs to learn how to use it responsibly because we're 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 driving the um, the kids out there and and. And just our population in, in general mm-hmm. um, into having to utilize mental health um, a lot more than they used to and we're driving them to you know to kind of break it down a little and that's not cool well I'm just looking around at how screwed up we are as a culture that's basically what and, I'm saying and it, it yeah it begins it begins with the family and then it carries on to school so we really I wish we had another 20 minutes to talk about this but we need to rethink this when we come back It's funny, our guest is going to be Alex's dad, so we could talk about 
the pressures that you grew up with, Alex. Perfect. I can't wait. And uh, and <laughs> I'm glad uh, we have a therapist in the room. Doctor yeah. uh, Doctor Ali Meshi will be with us. He's a naturopath, so he and I are going to go at it. Allopath versus naturopath. We'll talk about addiction in the brain, and uh, we'll talk about what it was like moving here from uh, Tehran, Iran. Cool. Uh, and uh, the pressures that you grew up with. So this is gonna this is gonna be a great interview. Uh, this you. is the train wreck. The phone number here is nine four nine six five zero one zero one five. I'm Dr. Joe, and I have Angelina and Alex Meshi. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the train wreck radio show. The phone number is nine four nine six five zero one zero one five. Call anytime. Jump in the conversation. <laughs> let's um, let's introduce our guest, Alex. Why don't you, since you know him best, why don't you go ahead and introduce your dad? So our guest tonight is my dad. He's a naturopath with a practice in South Orange County. His name is Dr. Ali Meschi, and uh, he's probably one of my biggest role models and people that I'm most proud of. So I'm really happy to have him here and oh, you know brag about him a little really bit. Nice. Wow. That's really nice. Yeah. That's really cool. Usually it's the other way around. <laughs> you know, parents bragging about their kids, but I'm going to brag about my dad. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, Ali, welcome to the show. Dr. Thank Ali, you. sorry. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Ali would be fine. Yeah. Thank you. So um, what's your take on the on the first part of the show? On, on perfectionism and, and coming from another country, how, uh, how, do you, how do you see the you Americans and how we deal with perfectionism? I honestly believe that perfectionism is a man-made word. You couldn't have created you create a wall, you create a river that you don't know how deep it is, oh. uh, but you want to cross it, uh, and you try very hard. However, you don't know how to swim. In other words, you don't know how to learn from a mistake of, I'm stepping into the water. If I can't cross it, can I come back? That's when the failure comes in. There's nothing wrong with attempting to cross the river. Uh, and finish the race. However, if you can't swim and come back when you fail, then that is a man-made, man-made mm-hmm. wall border that you just made. That you you don't know how to come back from your mistake. Because as long as you learn how to come back from your mistake and don't repeat it, you're perfectionist. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know how to get up and make a mistake, then you just made a word. Out of nothing that does not mean anything, mm. you don't know how to cope with it. Uh, you just see it as an artificial word. You'd never get to its meaning of what it means. Perfectionist, you have to fail to be perfectionist. You have to, it's a trial and error that you have to learn how to manage it. It's the management skill. You're not born perfectionist and you will not die a perfectionist step by step you learn for as long as you fall and you get up you can perfect whatever you're trying to do Uh, how egotistical is it of us as human beings to think that we can you know try to do something especially you know the failure rates of trying to do something the first time like starting a new business or or opening up a medical practice I mean, of course you're going to fail. Why, why, why does our ego not allow us to, to just be gentle on ourselves? And 
that is exactly that man man-made world that we have created that doesn't allow us because we created such a big black hole that we can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's with all this complication, perfectionism is very simple. You learn from your mistake and you perfect it the next step. Mm-hmm. And this is part of our culture. And as we go forward, the harder we push, the harder we fail because there is no such a thing at perfection. That sounds like healthy, yeah. healthy perfection. Absolutely. See, I think I think that's a really great way to look at it. And if you don't get up again, if you don't keep going, then then you don't learn. And it's okay to it's okay to fall. There is no such a thing. It's just word, dictionary word, and that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It sounds like resilience is at the core of this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think resilience has a lot to do with it. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny because when we were talking about this topic, and the reason why I brought up my dad is because he has a little bit of a story when he was going into medical school. Um, I've never seen so many 100% on a test. You know, he used to give me a hard time. Why not A+. Plus? Why not A+. Plus? I'm like, nobody gets A+. Pluses. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that. What was it like growing up in, you in Tehran? Mm-hmm. What, what was it like growing up there? And and in the Middle East, the culture is: you become a doctor, you become a lawyer, or you're no good. Go to bazaar, eat dirt, sell shoes, sell really. That's all it is. So there is a lot of pressure. Uh, I personally uh, was under pressure when I came in here, but very quickly I learned in '77. To survive, I had to work in a night shift in a gas station and go to school during the day. So I, I did not, there was no other way of doing that. So all those things taught me how to be stronger and push. It was time in early 80s that I worked four jobs. When, and you came in this in 77, so that was just right, right when the Shah... Was, just was just before the mm-hmm. revolution and the crisis, just a few months before that, before the whole thing started even. Uh, so the did, next thing... Did you learn English? Did you speak English prior to coming to the States? One word, if I say one phrase, and that was, that was, and that was exactly the conversation of trying to be perfect. I knew one word. I want a single room. That is all I could tell to my counselor. I want a single room because I wanted it to study hard. Because I knew here in the dormitory environment, there is a party, there is this. So that is all when I told her. I mean, the second I told her, she just laughed at me and just threw me into the pond with the uh, rest of the uh, fishes. Uh, so was there hashish growing up in... in, in <laughs> Was there ashish? Was there any drug use in Iran? Or is that shunned upon? It, it is. It, it, it's part of the culture uh, many times as a uh, recreational in opposed to uh, addiction. However, uh, because of the lack of oversight, very quickly it turns out to be addiction. Oh. And I do have family members in Iran who are technically addicted. They're addicts, yeah. They are. They are. Uh, how, how is addiction looked upon in Iran? Are there are are there treatment centers like there are in the United States? Is there are there understanding and compassion for addicts and alcoholics? 
It's to my understanding, it's, it's very destructive to them because they are not born. They want the children to be successful and perfect, and the last thing they want is a drug addict child. Mm. Now, of course, they will love them with all their heart. They room them, they board them, they take care of them, uh, they support their children. But it is the biggest um, uh, what's the word for it? Failure, uh, embarrassment for a family to have a child been addicted like what if what if alex were to be become addicted to something how would you how would you what would your initial reaction be murder <laughs> no i wouldn't do that but i will have a frank talk with him as trying to understand you see I always see there is a root cause in the body I, I honestly don't see addiction as a simple word of addiction there's a lot of complexity that comes into the picture that mm-hmm. we discard we don't pay attention to we just get a stick to that label on our forehead called addiction like what though well there's a lot of things we, we, we talk, for example, about addiction. We see them running a family. Uh, it's in their blood. It's genetic. I've always said that genetic play a very, very minimum pro, uh, role as little as 1% in our lifetime. So with that 1%, if the perfectionist, for example, the topic of this conversation, keep pushing a person... Uh, if the lack of understanding how to get up when they fail pushes them toward this thing. So when they fail, they feel bad. They go to the drug, whether it's a beer, alcohol, smoke, cigarette, whatever that is, it makes them feel better. So that is their comfort zone. Drug is their comfort zone where they go to. Hmm. So the harder they fail, the more they get comfortable in that drug zone. And then it makes it harder for them to walk out. So are you saying addiction is a disorder of learning? It's a learning disorder, so you learn to be an addict? I say it's more of a coping. Uh, Failure of coping. Um, But then again, if you... The way I see it, nutrition is the underlying cause of just about everything. Any disease, Mm -hmm. stress, nutrition dietary habit. Uh, well, addiction is a disease too, but then again, the way we think, the way we live, the way we eat can push us toward addiction. Hmm. So I, I've always said, I want to see what your blood cells, your, your body's fluid has to tell me yeah. why you're addicted. Because a simple lack of communication between the endocrine system, thyroid, adrenal, pituitary, that can be a major failure where a simple, simple drugs uh, can fix it. It yeah. can give us that energy that we need. So we don't have to go to the drug to pick up that energy. The phone number is 949-650-1015. You're listening to the Trainwreck Radio Show. So... Addiction. Sorry, I didn't is, see that truck. Is it disease? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you got to yeah, watch out. Yeah, get out of the way. <laughs> he was looking the opposite direction. So that's that's a huge a huge battle in the addiction community. Is addiction a disease? It is a disease. It's not. It's it's a learned disorder. It's a disorder of trauma. It's a disorder of. I I always I always jump on the biochemical bandwagon. 
because because you ask addicts across the board why did you everybody's got a different drug of choice so why did you choose heroin why did you choose meth invariably they always talk about how it makes them normalize it normalizes them so you know what what is that abnormality that they're talking about I don't think they understand how to describe that. Uh, I think it's uh, getting to that point where they're talking about uh, has come from a complex of failure uh, to be to that point. I, I honestly think that they're getting to that point by choice rather than it's biochemical. Well, when I say by choice, when you don't have any other choice, you want to get feel better, and there's that's the direction that is in front of you. Then you follow it. And you know, and I, I'll say I'll support that because I've I've said that before to the what? clients that, that well, hold on, let me let me finish my sentence before you jump in. That you know, the reason that people are going to substances is because that's the they're reaching for the thing that they can they can get to fast. That is the way to cope. Instant it's the only only way that they know how to cope until they can find something else that they can they can replace it with that um, helps them cope in a better and healthier way. Once you, rem- do you not agree with that? So what you're saying is is they they don't have a choice. No. So, I mean, if if, if you if you say addiction is a disease of choice, no, I'm saying. So it. you have a a sack of heroin and a banana. Do you have a choice to to pick up that banana to get that same effect? Really, when when your limbic system is in charge, no. When no, when you're in withdrawal and, you, and 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 you're in pain, I mean. No, no, that that was not no. what I meant by okay. choice. Is. Um, I think he meant more so choice of coping mechanism. Yeah. Basically, when you have someone that's dealing with an underlying problem, whether it's psychological trauma or physical pain, Mm -hmm. they're looking for that instant gratification to make the pain stop. Right. So whether that's that's taking heroin or opiates to make your back stop hurting, you know, because maybe you're 600 pounds and obese and Mm -hmm. of course you have problems, or maybe you've had some psychological trauma while you were younger and, you know, you. And the only way to escape that is taking Xanax or something crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, yeah exactly. See, I, I had a lady who, this is why I say I don't believe in this biochemistry and kind of a self-feedback loop that partly come from uh, the doctors who unintentionally keep prescribing. I had a young lady who came to me with 17 years of Xanax. Hmm. Let's, let's say... She came off of it in as little as two months because simply I could understand from her blood chemistry what she was lacking. Hmm. 17 years, she came off of it in two months and she has not been back on it yet. Uh, so, I want to know how you did that. <laughs> well, this is exactly what's just the complexity of it. Mm-hmm. It's just simple as, you know, this is Friday afternoon, either I go to a ballpark and went out. Or I go smoke something. Mm-hmm. So this is where the choices come from. Uh, this is not a uh, banana versus the heroin. This is how you want to went out. What is your comfort zone? Mm-hmm. Um, so she was comfortable. Her she never wanted it to be on that. Her doctor kept prescribing it. So mm-hmm. I knew why she was on it. It was very simple issues that I addressed and she came up a bit. So, but then again, she had the willing to. 
Okay, so that's, yeah, number one is you have to have the drive. So maybe she wasn't addicted, she was dependent. So the obsession, the compulsion, she didn't cross that line. Exactly. So she didn't have that relationship with it. But I want to get back to what you were talking about, biochemical, you know, or, or feedback mechanisms, or emotional, emotion, endocrine linking to the emotional. So, so how do you approach a patient who comes in holistically who has an apparent addiction? How would you start? Well, before you reach for the good things, we want to see what drops you. I want to know if it's hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. I want to see if it's adrenal fatigue. I want to see if it's hypothyroidism. I want to know what it is that crushes you. Because if I can give you what drops you, then there is no reason for you to reach for the good feeling because there is no crash. So I find a root cause. I lay established foundation. There is no fluctuation. There is no glucose going all over the up and down, hypo, hyper. Because every time you drop, every time that simple glucose drops, you're looking for pick-me-up. That pick-me-up could be as simple as a cup of coffee, a candy, a gum, a sugar, a donut carbs okay perfect mm-hmm. the brain says thank you so much but i will be burning this fuel that you just gave me in less than half an hour so here comes the crash again mm-hmm. well, i'm looking for another pick me up and, and to some people that that low blood sugar that hypoglycemia can be extremely distressing it can cause anxiety in some people that mimic panic attacks absolutely Oh, man, I've seen people freak out from low blood sugar because they forgot to eat breakfast. And then, yeah. like, hangry is an understatement. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're on a straight tear for something. And how many times do you tell your patients, do not get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? And, and hungry lot, is huge. I used to tell them, the ones I worked with, a lot. And they would go, yeah, yeah. And then they come back and go, oh, yeah, I really do need to work on that. <laughs> so as relapse prevention... We usually tell our patients not to get hungry because hypoglycemia can cause a relapse. Angry, obviously. We don't want the, the amygdala and we don't want, you know, the, the warning signals, the, which is intimately linked to the adrenal glands. Of course, of course. And the more you get stressed, the more you get anxiety, the more the adrenal crashes, the more you're reaching for the good things. But it sounds like that drug. we're doing it, we're, we're saying it on very general terms. You're actually going in and, and you're, you're working with each individual, um, you know, customizing the solution to them. Correct. And so that, that's beautiful. I think the future of addiction is exactly what you're doing. I think we are underestimating... <coughs> The, 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 hypo, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal axis, along with the thyroid. I think, I think 50% of addictions can be corrected if we focus on that. You know, everybody keep calling it a disease. That's fine. And so is a cardiovascular disease. So is a cancer is a disease. But if you break it down at what caused it, let's say, a cardiovascular, you got a blood issue, you got a heart issue, you got an endocrine issue. So if you solve this problem, then you don't have a disease. So I don't want to hmm. put a fancy name just to cover that addiction is a disease and there is no way around it. There is, you can't mm-hmm. fix this. It's a disease. Well, so is everything else uh, that can be fixed. It seems like addiction, the addiction treatment field needs to be deconstructed 
and built up in a different way because what we're doing now is I don't think we're we kind of know the root causes but we're not really picking them apart and treating them the way we should be what do you think, Ange? No, I think that's absolutely right. I think what we're doing a lot of the time is we're saying that we're doing treatment and um, we're, we're band-aiding. We're providing band-aids um, and we're absolutely not treating it, um, it in the most comprehensive way that we could be. Um, so I think that, you know, it needs to be the holistic uh, approach needs to be incorporated a lot more and really looking at people uh, as individuals um, like what you're talking about. I think it's beautiful. Exactly. That this, I honestly don't believe we said disease that cannot be cured, that cannot be reversed, that cannot be slowed down. Uh, however, when you're trying to look for a replace a stronger drug with a lower drug, you're still treating the disease. You're not addressing the root cause and. That's what I think should be part of this addiction program, mm -hmm. a root cause. Uh, where there's sometimes emotional issues as a child can lead into this thing where they, they can't get over it. Yeah, um, Ange, Ange does a lot of trauma work and outstanding in her field. And to the two of you should talk after the show. I believe, Dr. Ali, that the future of addiction treatment is going to rest in the in in the holistic care and then in the naturopath's hands, uh, because allopathically we're kind of we're coming up short. Well, allopathically speaking, is financial motivation behind yes. it, and when you cannot separate the medicine from the business, yeah. that was the money then there is no solution for yeah. it. I completely agree with and, you. And I think the people that are in favor of calling it a disease have a lot of financial investment in the, in that disease. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, let's go to our final break. In studio is Dr. Ali Meshki. He is a naturopath. And your questions can be taken at 949-650-1015. This is the Trainwreck Radio Show. I am Dr. Joe. I'm Angelina. And Alex. Welcome back to the Trainwreck Radio Show. The phone number is 949-650-1015. We're also on kociradio.com if you are out of the Orange County listening area. So in studio, Dr. Ali Meski, he's a naturopath, doctor of naturopathic medicine. So you're, you, you've heard of the opioid epidemic, right? Every day. <laughs> Every day, yes. So, so as a naturopath, do you ever think about what we're doing wrong? You know, our, I guess I should pose a different question. Do you think, in your opinion, do you think that physicians, allopathic physicians that write prescriptions for opiates, do you, do you believe that we're the cause? I think they are part of the problem. See, here we have legal drugs that allopathic doctors write, and then we have illegal drugs that come into our streets, uh, for example, yesterday they confiscated some $400 million worth of these drugs. Uh, but then again, I, I think the business part of the uh, medicine is kind of a pushing this drug addiction because some of these drug makers are top billionaires in the world. So knowingly that these drugs can kill, can addict, can destroy lives, uh, teenagers, families, mothers, sons, um, but still, you see, some of the doctors prescribe 
over and abundance in a number of pills for a single surgery, sending the guys home with a hundred of pain pill for a simple broken finger or something. You think that's still happening? By all means, yes, indeed. Yeah, yes, actually, yes. That, that was that was a rhetorical question. It is still happening, and it's it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. That's why I said it is part of the problem. Uh, everybody have to take responsibility. If, if I go to a doctor and I pull my tooth, then he's going to send me home with a hundred um, opioid pills. I'm going to say, what am I doing with this? Why are we even writing this thing? So it is my responsibility to stand up to my doctor because sometimes they get into the business of pleasing you. We are very pleasing-oriented people. I want my coffee writer. I'm going to give you a one rating. So they try to please us. Uh, so with that said, they have that downfall. On the other hand, pharmaceutical company pushes some of these doctors to prescribe these things more. Uh, there is a very intense um, incentive, uh, financially speaking. How so? Because I don't, I don't see that anymore. Well, that's... I'm not seeing doctors benefiting. Some who, who I am are seeing is oncologists. Oncologists benefiting from, they're the dispensers of chemotherapeutics that they're marking up. Other doctors really don't have, have uh, the ability to mark up medications. And you don't, I don't think a pharmaceutical company would, even under the table, would risk... They are not having they one not. doctor, you know, write prescriptions. It's they're relying on volume and they're relying on on you know. Well, back in the '90s, you know why narcotics became so popular is because the uh, the American Medical Association, along with the FDA and the the pain med industry, saw that these meds these medications were addictive, and then they started to brainwash allopaths into making your pain is your fifth vital sign temperature blood pressure pulse respiration and then pain so treating that pain now was a marker was a was a um a determination of how good of a doctor you were so and then they along comes uh on the scene is something to to help a doctor achieve this the the the, the most patient satisfaction and we were also told that they weren't addictive. Fast forward 20 years later, this is the problem that we had. So I, I do believe that it was, you know, you have a, a, a generation of doctors like myself that were told, and that's how I became addicted, is I had no idea. I had no idea. And, this, and you had samples of it in your closet. You could walk in, grab one, give it to a patient, walk in, grab one, give it to yourself. You, you didn't really think twice about it. I feel like that goes for almost anything in history. I mean, we had doctors trying to sell cigarettes back in the day. You know, nine out of ten doctors recommend Marlboro Reds. Yeah, like, I guess oh, it doesn't make it right. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and then even alcohol. Chesterfields. Yeah. When, when you need to relax. My doc. Yeah. Yeah. Remember? It's, it's like yeah. anytime something new comes out that we don't know too much about or something's manufactured, they're like, oh, yeah, just it, nine out of ten doctors recommend it. I'm like, well... What is this? Oh, I don't know. But nine out of ten doctors recommend it. it's got to be. It's got to okay. be good. Jeez. You know? But but in a in a world where we have such such we're we're evidence based now, and you're you're evidence based, right? Naturopaths are evidence based. So you look at you look at say adrenal fatigue. Suppose a patient came in and they were addicted to you know benzos, or 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 they were on stimulants. Better yet, 
they were addicted to the Adderall prescription that their doctor gave them 15 years ago that continues to give it to them. And now they're addicted to amphetamines. How would you, how would you approach a patient like that in, in consideration? Because adrenal fatigue is really important. Well, adrenal is one of the biggest piece of the puzzle, but yet uh, another issue would be thyroid subclinically. Mm. Subclinically, subclinical hypothyroidism is. What do you mean by that? Subclinical. Well, it, it clinically speaking, there's a lab range. Let's say in thyroid cases, locally here is from. 0.5 to about four and a half. That's the TSH. So when you look at your lab test, you're talking about the TSH, and that's the test that I order all the time. Well, uh, if a patient's in between those numbers, I tell my patient, you don't have a thyroid problem. Exactly. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I think that is absolutely wrong because we're looking for a disease. In my field, I'm not looking for disease. I'm looking for root cause. Thyroid, for example, a hypothyroidism can go five to ten years before it becomes clinical, and that it was above the lab range. So, if I can catch it within that frame, uh, that I know the, the symptoms are persisting constantly, uh, no matter what it is, and you can write a book for God's sake uh, on the symptoms of hypothyroidism, mm-hmm. even some clinically. Uh, I address that, and they feel. Uh, wonderful about that so i don't wait if it's so how come i'm not working out my patients who come in with depression related diseases alcoholism and that may be related to sub so, so somebody could have subclinical hypothyroidism for years become depressed and then turn to like you were talking about angelina exactly. turn turn to drugs to exactly. self-medicate exactly i talk about that all the time one of the biggest uh, symptoms of hypothyroidism is severe fatigue. They can't focus. They cannot think. But on the other hand, they want to be perfect. Whether they want it or not, job, family, husband, kids, they have to make this. So the supply and demand here are unmet. Uh, there is a lot of demand. Do this, do that. Your job, be here five, six days, six days a week, etc. But the demand a little thyroid support can make a world of difference uh, instead of the, uh, the let's say um, the patient complained to their doctor that I'm tired that I'm tired I'm losing I can't, I'm gaining weight etc etc I'm and all the doctors gonna say you know what it's in your head because your blood is fine here is the Xanax you're depressed you have anxiety, mm-hmm. yeah. and that plays every single day because they are not looking at the root cause of this thing. And the root cause can be very simple. They're giving uh, them a Band-Aid. Exactly. Mm-hmm. As a naturopathic practitioner, how do you look at our antidepressants? Because I, I, I when I write a, a prescription for an antidepressant, I am extremely hesitant. I, I respect those medications. I would rather uh, next time you try, uh, we can collaborate, uh, but I'll try next time try to put them on the low dose of the right thyroid, hmm. and you'll see a much better difference affecting the whole body rather than getting on a drug that's going to go depression, anxiety, depression, anxiety. They're just going to feed one another's loop. Um, and and, and how do you feel about thyroid replacement? Bioidentical or or pharmaceutical? 
Well, bioidentical are sort of, um, they are pharmaceutical, they are patented, uh, there is a whole lot natural about them. So they're same thing, but th- the source varies a little bit. Medical doctors like Centroid because they rely on this um, being a little more stable. Mm-hmm. Naturopath likes other form of natural thyroids. Um, you have armor. Armor, Naturothroid, mm-hmm. so and so. Uh, but the bottom line, Thyroid is not, it's, thyroid is only one piece. We're talking about it, yeah. but the rest of the endocrine system uh, also play a role in getting everything balanced. So, yeah. It's, it seems like we have our work cut out for us. But it seems like it's a, it's a possible missing piece of the puzzle in the overall solution of treating, you know, addiction. Is that, you know, again, we don't have this perfect solution yet, um, and we really need to incorporate holistic more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that, you know, maybe using holistic more than allopathic and, uh, in the future, because what we're doing right now, it's, it's just not working. I don't, I don't even know if I would say so much more holistic than allopathic, but in hearing everything from a third-party perspective, since I'm not in the medical field, it sounds like we're not individualizing treatment. We're, we're doing blank, blanket treatment for blanket causes, mm-hmm. and, and we're talking about these ranges that are estimated values for the population when mm-hmm. just because you're in the range, your body may not necessarily be healthy. Yeah. Right. Well, having, having a combined team like we have in the room here, this would be pretty amazing. Well, Dr. Ali, I was <laughs> playing devil's advocate today. You know, uh, I'm, I'm representing the allopathic community, but my practice has shifted in the past two years from pharmaceutical, from pad to uh, dietary. I think I think nutrition has a huge impact on on people's ability to get sober and stay sober. I believe the the hormone axis is is. Of utmost importance, you got to get that aligned before somebody can really achieve really good, stable sobriety, especially if they have a mood disorder like depression Mm -hmm. or generalized anxiety disorder or even bipolar. I'll go so far as to say that. I would love to have you back on so we can have more of a medical show and i'm sorry we kind of took up oh my gosh no it's fascinating with with, with not at all okay fascinating i would love to have you back on and just kind of have a one-on-one just do a medical show would love to yeah and we can uh you know we can entertain a get a little bit more in depth sure any closing comments before we end the show no, I, I think everybody here agrees that uh, treating addiction allopathically alone is not the answer. Has not been the answer. Replacing one drug with another one is not the answer. Look at the root cause and take it from there. And Jenny, closing comments? I think that uh, that was it, actually. That was beautifully yeah. said. Mm-hmm. Alex, so- anything you want to thank your father for? Thanks for not embarrassing me on live radio. <laughs> we, we went easy on you, Alex. <laughs> you were very quiet. You, you're lucky we didn't have time to really get into it. Ripper, thank you tonight for showing up sick. And uh, Gia, you're out on the road. We're thinking about you, and we'll see you next week. Uh, this is the Trainwreck Radio Show. I'm Dr. Joe. And I'm Angelina. And Alex filling in. And Jason Waller will, will be back soon. Get Dr. well, Jason. Dr. Ali yeah. Meski, how can we reach you? 
Uh, call my office, 949-206-9061. I'm right here in Laguna Hills. Excellent. Thank you for spending your Thursday night with us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, you. guys, everybody, have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Until then, stay close.